and the earthquake was was rather shocking it was probably like a six or at least a 5.7 so definitely felt it and none of us realized that it wasn't grass it was mud that went all the way up to the axles if everyone's healthy and good and you know the care is is good then women can have births even off the grid as we made our way down it just kept getting worse and worse and worse and she started to transition in the car. So we got in a, in a small airplane with the dad, who was also super sleep deprived because he'd been up all night. Goats hitting, jumping, and ramming the Silver Stream. Mind you, the Silver Stream is on the edge of a cliff. Like Mother Earth, the Earth element supplies the nourishment that sustains all life. It is the digestive power that transforms raw material into the fuel our body and mind needs, the constant provider and the hearth around which the body gathers. Its archetype is that of the peacemaker who desires connection, enjoys community, values loyalty, service, and harmony. The earth element is associated with late summer and the 18-day transition period at the end of each season. It represents harmony, stability, and balance. It symbolizes the energy of groundedness, rootedness, steadiness, focus, and the condition of being well-nourished. According to ancient Vedic texts, it's the earth element that provides structure and solidity in our physical body, bones, fats, muscles, and tissues. The earth element is also related to the time when the baby is in the womb and its body parts are being formed. This is why in Ayurvedic traditions, pregnant women are encouraged to increase their intake of food sources rich in the earth element. The term earth religion encompasses any religion that worships the earth, nature, or fertility. There is an array of groups and beliefs that fall under earth religion, such as paganism, Hinduism, which are polytheistic nature-based religion, Animism, which is the worldview that all living entities, plants, animals, and humans possess a spirit. Wicca, which holds the concept of an earth mother goddess, as well as the practice of ritual magic. And Druidism, which equates divinity with the natural world. Historically, earth medicine wheels are a pattern of central circle and cluster of stones surrounded by outer ring of stones, along with spokes or lines of rocks radiating from the center out to the surrounding ring. Often, but not always, the spokes may be aligned to the cardinal directions of east, south, west, and north. And in other cases, some stones may be aligned with astronomical phenomenon. These stone structures were called earth medicine wheels by the indigenous nations, notably many of the plains nations in America. And pre-Indo-European societies, lived in small-scale, family-based communities that practiced matrilineal secession and goddess-centered religion, where creation comes from the woman. She is the divine mother who can give life and take it away. In Irish mythology, she is Danu. In Slavic mythology, she is Mat Zimna. And in other cultures, she is Pachamama, Ninsu, Terramater, Nauwu, Matars, and Shakti. Today, many Americans view the Earth in religious terms, at least in some way. For example, 70% say the Earth is sacred, and including 43% who say this is the case because God created it. Even among religiously unaffiliated Americans, two-thirds say the Earth is sacred, attributing this to the fact that all living things depend on it, and that Earth is in fact irreplaceable. The first story we're going to hear on this earth or land episode is a big one. Nothing is quite so powerful as when the whole earth shakes. And our first story is indeed an earthquake birth story in California. But our midwife Monica goes even deeper into the complexities of midwifery care and tells us about a rare complication or disorder that can happen with newborns. Let's listen in. My name is Monica Adashinaroshitska. 
Um, I was a California licensed midwife uh, for 15 years um, and CPM as well. I'm currently not holding any title, just letting them kind of do their thing without my name being attached um, to any certification, doing other work now. So this is back in, I believe, 2010. Um, so I was a pretty new practicing midwife. I believe I got the call or text first. I believe it was a call from my client in the early morning letting me know. And let me, um, I guess, share a little bit about this family. So this is a family. It's their second baby. One of the presenting issues for the mom, one of her fears was as she suffered with scoliosis, which is a spine, um, basically where the spine has an S-shaped sideways a little bit. And so it can get worse in pregnancy. Her main concern was that she was afraid her back would hurt more than the labor. And one of the reasons she chose home birth was because she knew she wouldn't be able to get an epidural. She was really worried about an epidural hurting her back more and having more long-term, you know, side effects afterwards. They even had the grandparents attend some of the prenatals because they would be around during either the early or late birth or postpartum. So they all wanted to kind of be informed um, and very sweet family. Everything went normal with the pregnancy um, that I can think of. I don't believe there were any major concerns. And as we got closer to the birth, of course, we were in touch more often. So I believe she called or texted me that morning um, that she was going into labor and I was ready. You know, I had all my equipment ready. She was about 40, 45 minutes away uh, from where I live. So I, I got the text in the morning. And then I believe the earthquake happened late morning. Like it was maybe like 10.30, maybe this is January 9th, I believe 2010. And the earthquake was was rather shocking. It was probably like a six or at least a 5.7. So definitely felt it. Where I lived, you know, our books kind of fell off the shelves. Maybe a couple things fell off, but there was no major damage. Where she lived, she was much closer to the fault line and the epicenter of the earthquake. So her house was pretty trashed. Um, a lot of things broke. Um, one of the memories I have is they had this huge aquarium fish, fish tank, like a 200-gallon fish tank. And that fell and shattered. And it was all over the, the glass was all over the floor. The other thing to note is after the earthquake, so I know she's in early labor now, my cell was out of service. Actually, a lot of cell, cell phones were out of service. And this is really important because during natural disasters, phones don't work as usual. I remember being very concerned about that. Like, oh my gosh, how can I be in communication? I think it took about five hours for the phone to be back up. And I um, did have a landline. I, I probably did check in with her. I'm sure I tried going to other places to see if my phone would work. Long story short, it's now later in the day, getting towards the evening. Phone is back on, thankfully. Goodness, that's so stressful to have no phone, be like with someone in early labor, um, as you can imagine. At least for me, it was. Maybe some folks are like, whatever, it'll all work out. So then... They call that things are picking up. Now it's towards the evening. And they did have, I, I when we did our prenatal prep, we talked about having a separate or a cozy space because she had, you know, other family around. So she set up her birth room in the back of the house, which was not affected by the earthquake. There was no glass in that room. It was just a mattress and beautiful, you know, things that she could look at and get inspired, uh, but nothing that could could break. So we just basically focused on that part of the house. The electricity was out. I remember that, which is not unusual for emergency situations to have no um, utilities. I believe that gas was shut off. So we used um, natural light. You know, we used candles and we used flashlights and we just made a beautiful birth set up. Um, and she labored along. A lot of her labor was on her side from like, like on the, she was laying down one of her hips, just trying to stay off her back and did actually mention her back hurt. So we did a lot of counter pressure, checking in and make sure that was okay. She appreciated it uh, between the contractions. Labor along 
I believe the baby came right around 1 a.m. The reason being is because I left in the early morning. So I remember the baby came out while she was side lying. She, she had a little bit of assistance with, with her leg. And, um, you know, she didn't really actually complain about the contractions at all. Uh, mostly her back. And she even said, I'm surprised that it doesn't hurt as much as my back does. And even though she was preparing for that, um, but she handled it so well. Um, baby came, you know, perfect Apgars, nine ten Apgars, that baby girl again, total bliss mode. We contain the space. Everything went really well. And they were really happy, really blissed out breastfeeding got off to a good start she was already breast she had already breastfed her her first and so it was a little bit easier um but she kept saying how different it was and how beautiful it was to be at home and how she so appreciated the care and you know obviously the care home birth midwives give is is top notch and so um you know and we stayed about three or four hours postpartum so they were really settled in um i i don't really remember very many details about the immediate postpartum, but I did want to share that day five. So I go over, I usually do a 24 hour visit after birth, usually a three day and like a five to seven day visit. So day five, I go, well, first of all, she calls around um, the evening on day four and is saying the baby seems to be twitching a lot. And I'm like, oh, okay, tell me about it. And she's like, well, the baby seems to be like moving its legs uncontrollably. Um, And then I I was like, well, um, you know, babies do move their legs. You know, what is it like? And she seemed really concerned about it. uh, But she was like, I'm sure it's fine. You know, I'm just, you know, and I was like, I'm going to come see you in the morning. Um, I'll just go ahead and and just monitor and watch the baby, you know, and, and then go to sleep. Then she calls a few hours later, maybe two hours later. And this is like now nighttime, like probably 11 o'clock or midnight at this time. Something's wrong. The baby's eyes are rolling back in the head as the baby is basically convulsing. And I said, no, that's not normal. Uh, Let's go meet at the hospital, which was just like five minutes away for her, about 30 minutes away for me. We we're just going to meet there. We weren't going to do a home visit first. Um, I called it in <clears throat> and we went to the hospitals called St. Joe's up there. One of the hospitals who has um, obstetrical services. And we went in, you know, hand over the chart. This is a paper chart. Um, spoke about the birth, you know, a- absolutely everything went great. Nine, 10 Apgars. I've been visiting this family, you know, several postpartum visits, babies checking out. Well, turns out the baby had a stroke, which actually one, I believe it's one in 4,000 babies can have a stroke. This was my one and only stroke in my career for a baby, although I've had other people in my life who've had strokes or older. Um, and so just making sure really, it was very traumatic for them because all of a sudden the baby was being airlifted to UCSF down in San Francisco. So their sweet little like five day postpartum turned into medical sequel. Um, The baby was in the hospital for about a week. They did determine that it was a stroke. uh, But however, you know, meeting with neurologists um, for many, many months afterwards, they determined the baby would mostly recover as long as she didn't have additional strokes. Um, And I did get to see her for her first birthday. Um, And, you know, once you have a stroke, regardless of what age it is, even an infancy, it does affect you. It's a it's a neurological thing. Um, But of course, the younger your stroke, the younger people have a stroke, the more their recovery. So her mom continued to keep in touch over the years and said, you know, she has special needs, but she's making great progress. Um, Absolutely had nothing to do with the birth, which, you know, is reassuring to hear, even though I knew it wasn't related to the birth, it's still a lot of responsibility for the midwives to carry that. Um, And I just, the reason I mentioned that was that it's really interesting that it coincided with the earthquake, you know, and so how there was that shock. I'm not saying the earthquake caused the, um, the stroke in any way, but there was that earth moving uh, and then, you know, several days postpartum, the baby had um, 
a stroke. And so that's, and I kept seeing them through the end of care, which is six to eight weeks. And then they kept in touch, you know, now we are not, not really in touch, but not out of any reason, just over the year, it's been like 13 years now. Um, so that was, that was an exciting birth. And also I had a student there and another licensed midwife who was fairly new and the student was fairly new. And one of the students, the student had said to me, I didn't realize this was part of our work because she saw what we did postpartum when we came to the hospital and we were part of the team. Emotional support at that point, we don't do that advanced level of care, but holding that space for the parents so that they could get the highest level of care. And I do believe because of how well the transfer went, that baby got the best medical care because it was very quick. It wasn't like they waited for hours or days at the Eureka hospital. They were like, I remember it being so fast, like we're gonna airlift your baby. Your baby had some, you know, had a stroke or had a medical sequel. Um, I do think that when there's easier transfers that benefits the families. So yeah, I just I just wanted to share that and an emotional story. Um, and apparently babies can have stroke in the womb too. And so um, there's a lot of complexity with our brains. What do you do if the land basically swallows your car? Well, that's what rural Kentucky midwife Wantina has to struggle with. And between taxi drivers, a team of horses, a tractor, and a car stuck in the mud, she manages to make it to all three births. Let's listen in. Hi, I'm Wantina Brooks Roach and I'm midwife in Kentucky. And, you know, there's this one time that just never leaves your memory about the day that you get stuck in the mud trying to be a midwife. We were at a first time mom. She's an Amish mama and her birth was not going well. So we were on our way to the hospital. And we had been so glued into what was going on at the birth that we hadn't really paid attention to the outside elements. Um, and so when we were packing up, getting ready to leave, I walked outside only to find that it had been raining so much that we were actually under a flash flood warning. But you know, we have a gravel driveway, it's fine. We should be able to back out, except that my student didn't back out of the driveway, she decided to do a U-turn in the grass, and none of us realized that it wasn't grass, it was mud that went all the way up to the axles, and that blocked the whole driveway. <laughs> so now we have to figure out how to get a mom out of the house, out to the edge of the road, for a Namish driver to come pick us up to take us to the hospital and leave everything because we have to get this mom into the hospital to make sure that it's safe. So we got her to the hospital, everything was fine. The hospital handled everything. She had a good birth. And, uh, but now I have to go back home to her house and find how to get the car out of her driveway. So I got back there and uh, yeah, there was no going anywhere. We were completely stuck. So I'm barefoot out in the mud digging with my shovel, trying to get the tires out, <clears throat> praying that nobody else calls me in labor, but all the powers that be don't always listen to my prayers. So as I'm standing there in the mud, digging my tire out, my phone rings and it is another mom ready for me <laughs> in labor. So thank goodness the Amish taxi driver was still there. And so he's like, don't worry about your shoes, just get in the car, I'll take you over. So I grabbed my bag and he took me to the birth and then he and my husband came back and spent the next two hours trying to get my car out of the mud and it took a tractor and a team of horses to get the car out of the mud um, and then uh, one of the other taxi drivers drove my car to the other berth where I was at so that I would at least have the rest of my stuff to be functional. I was still cleaning mud off my feet for the next two days. Um, after that birth because it was a hurry, hurry, hurry process and I didn't have time and we had babies and I couldn't get my car. There's nothing worse than trying to slug through mud, trying to get what you think you might need from a car to get to the next birth, to ride in somebody else's car 
hoping you can make it to the birth, but you know you're covered in mud. Now we're gonna go to rural Western Massachusetts and we're literally gonna go over the river and through the woods to a home birth. Let's listen in as Hannah tells the story. Hi folks, um, my name is Hannah Ertel. I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania right now. I am an RN and a CPM and I have a home birth practice here in my home as my office. And this story actually took place when I was still an apprentice with River Valley Midwives and some great midwives, Jarna Harvey and I, and Kristen Bernard, um, probably maybe 2008, somewhere around there, maybe 2009, but it's been a hot minute. Um, so I was honored and privileged to work with those midwives um, in Western Massachusetts. Um, and we had a lot of rural folks that lived outside of Amherst, Massachusetts, where we were. And these people lived amazingly close to the land. And it was really fun to see different types of people and how they lived. So this particular story was, it was a second birth for this couple with River Valley, but it was my first time being involved in their care. And we drove far out over the hills and through the woods. And we got to this nice land where we parked our car high up and we kind of like hiked down a little bit. And then we had to cross this big suspension bridge. And there was a little creek that sometimes would probably be raging more and sometimes would be low. And these folks were full on farmers, sheep, goats, draft horses, vegetables. Um, and this is what they did, you know, for their living full time. So they actually lived in a off the grid house that was kind of up the hill a little bit. Um, their newest addition to their home that they were excited about since their first birth was a composting toilet. Um, so that was like their big upgrade. And it was a really nice composting toilet. Um, they didn't have refrigeration. They used old school cold storage for all of their cold stuff. They used wood heat, which is was pretty common in other households in Western Mass. Um, and they used little propane for like lights and things like that. And they were really back to the land. So they had one one little one and they were expecting their second baby. So as the apprentice, I think an important part of finding a preceptor to work with is a level of trust that you have in the knowledge that you're getting from them and the type of midwifery that they're training you in and as to be. So I like to refer to Jarna and Kristen as my midwife mothers. And when I explain to people, I say, well, the way I grew up, meaning the way I grew up in midwifery. Um, obviously, uh, as you become your own midwife, you form your own ways of doing things also, just like a young child learns from their parents and then forms their own ways, but you still have those roots. So in talking about trust, I went with Jarn and Kristen and at 36 weeks, we would always go do a home visit and make sure all the supplies were there and really to make sure we knew how to get to um, where we were going, especially in the middle of the night. Um, this was a particular place that we really needed to know where we were going because we were going to be walking in. And I remember sitting amongst the uh, the room with the father and the mom-to-be and a little girl toddling around. And the midwives were going over, okay, we have all our equipment and, you know, how are you feeling? And then part of that 36-week visit was also um, an emergency plan. So in, you know, your typical... 36 week visit, it would be, okay, is there parking? Who's going to drive? Which hospital would we go to if we had to go to an emergency? You know, do you have a car seat? Those type of general questions. So I remember sitting in this dimly lit um, little one room cabin that felt magical and otherworldly and other timely actually. And the midwives asked the, you know, the couple, I don't remember their names anymore, but they asked them, so if we needed to get out, what what's our plan? And very calmly, I remember the couple saying, well, since the, the river is at low tide this part of the season, we'll have the horses hitched up and ready to go with a sled. And without missing a beat, Jarna and Kristen were like, okay. And I just remember sitting there like, oh my God, like, is this for real? And I was like, 
well, if they're okay with it, then I guess I'm okay with it too, because I had that level of trust in them and they had trust in themselves and trust in the client that they were working with, that they trusted that this hubby would be able to, in the drop of a hat, get those draft horses hitched up with a sled and get his wife <laughs> through the river and up to where he needed to be, where the cars were parked. So that was kind of my memory of that birth. So fast forward a couple weeks, the woman goes into labor and in Western Mass, um, for those aren't familiar, when it snows, it snows and it doesn't really leave, especially up in the mountains to at least May. So we're talking about snow that could be knee or even hip inch deep that just kind of sticks around. So it was snowing. Um, it must have been the winter. And we drove our cars at all hard four wheel drive. And we parked up at that top little landing that was really just looked like it was off the side of the street. But we knew, you know, oh, it's by this tree that we should park or whatever it was. And they had left sleds, plastic sleds with pulls up there for us. And so Jarna and I um, loaded our equipment, you know, our O2 tanks, our bags with all of our stuff onto these sleds. And I can't remember, they might have left snowshoes for us too. And we, I do remember just trudging through the snow down the hill and over this suspension bridge with this, you know, fairly large, I would even call it a river. It was definitely more than a creek, you know, kind of bubbling underneath us and really literally hiking up through the snow um, to this little cabin in the woods um, where we found a very peacefully laboring woman with the crackle of the wood burning stove in the back and her you know little toddler kind of peeking around the corners and fairy lights in the window and we unloaded our stuff quietly and slowly slipped into the birth space and she had a beautiful baby in in their little one house off the grid um, place we made sure to have plenty of wood stacked for them to have postpartum and um, and that was my story of dealing with the land in midwifery um, and really, you know, trusting, trusting the birth process. And even though you might not have the hospital two seconds away, that if if everyone's healthy and good and, you know, the care is is good, then women can have births even off the grid. We can't possibly talk about Mother Earth without also talking about the amazing curative elements she offers us every day. Here at Midwifery Wisdom, we are so excited about our newest course offering, Homeopathy for Childbirth, taught by renowned Danish homeopath, Meta Mitchell. Homeopathy for Childbirth is a first-of-its-kind, meek-accredited course for midwives and birth professionals. This course will take you through an introduction to homeopathy, the Materia Medica, and the application of these remedies in each stage of birth. To learn more about this and all of our course offerings, visit www.midwiferywisdom.com forward slash school. In some parts of the country, when the roads get bad, we can't get out to serve our clients. And then sometimes, like in this story with Katie in rural California, the EMS can't get in to help clients that were planning to birth in the hospital. Let's listen in as Katie gets called to assist a woman in her community after the roads are washed out. I'm Katie Jones. I live in Southern California and I'm a licensed midwife. So just a couple months out of me getting my license, I ended up, um, I was at home and we had a really bad storm that day. We had gotten about three foot of snow the day prior. And that day we got nine inches of rain um, that morning. My husband had called me and said that the road had washed out on the way down um, when he went to work that morning. And we had always had to travel off the mountain. Then my son, I had gotten a call from the school saying they weren't going to be able to make it up the mountain because the road had washed out the other way up the mountain. So I knew we had one more way off the mountain and I was going to, I was about ready to go pick up my son down in, in the lower lands to see if I could make it. And 
that's when I got a call from one of our local um, bakery shops saying that he had one of his employees in labor and they had talked to the fire department and they couldn't get her down. And he knew that I was just a brand new midwife. And he said, is there any way I could help her? And I said, well, we can try to make it down the desert way. I was just about headed that way. And he um, said, well, meet me here and we'll cruise down the mountain. And that way, just in case there's anything wrong, we can you we have you. And I was like, well, that's not going to happen. We're going to make it down the mountain. It will not be a problem. Well, I didn't realize how bad the roads were because <laughs> I was just at home all day watching it rain. As we made our way down, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And she started to transition in the car. And her husband was stuck down on the other side of the mountain and couldn't make it up to her. And so we ended up, um, she started howling and I'm like, well, do you got to push? And we're in the back of this, this, uh, truck. And she's like, yeah, I feel like I got to push. And I'm like, well, then I think we need to pull over just so we're in a more stabilized environment. And she's like, my house is right down the road. Can we make it to this house? And I'm like, all right, well, if your house is right down the road and she's trying to give direction to where we're going and it's a very small town, it's probably one of the smaller towns in Southern California. So um, luckily her boss knew where she lived and we made it to her house. And I didn't know that she was living in a, an RV at the time. (laughs) So we get out and we make it to her RV and it was down a pretty rough dirt road especially with all the rain that we were getting and she makes it onto the stairs and I goes I need a cigarette and I'm like oh no like have you been smoking throughout your pregnancy like I don't know this woman really um I had seen her but I didn't know you know I had done no prenatal care with her I didn't know this person and that's not like me because I was a brand new midwife so I didn't know what I was getting myself into and so we're like well you can't like smoke (laughs) this is you got to push out your baby (laughs) and um she was she just started roaring and she ended up I ended up catching her baby on the stairs of her RV as she was like I I have to have a cigarette (laughs) and so that night or as we stabilized her um the roads just continued to get worse and so her, I was like, well, we can't just leave you here by yourself. Like, we have to have somebody stay here. And I was like, I can stay here. And her boss was like, well, I can stay here with her because the the husband was, he was on his way. Um, there was an area that had washed out, but he had found a dirt road that he could make it to. So we ended up staying until her husband could get to her. And that was a few hours later. <laughs> so it just worked out that she was stabilized baby was safe baby was happy and we couldn't make it down the mountain so we just i ended up doing postpartum care with her and and it was a great outcome in the end and she actually went on to have another baby with me (laughs) sometimes one of the elements of danger on the land are the people we're going to go to alaska and listen to the stories of rural Alaskan birth and navigating the sometimes choppy waters of small towns. Hi, my name is Elka. I'm Elka Millicent Barnes. I'm a midwife, I'm a CPM, and I practiced for many, many years in Alaska. Right now I'm living in the Seattle area, taking a break, recovering from burnout. And I have great stories about land from the great land from practicing in Alaska. I was licensed there for about 12 years. And then I practiced before that unlicensed for about two years. And before that I worked um, as a doula and a childbirth educator. So I have a lot of years under my belt. But where it got really interesting is part of my um, apprenticeship, I apprenticed from uh, with a midwife that traveled a lot. She was a traveling midwife. And she was also native and she lived in a small fishing village uh, called Cordova. And then she would get called to other kind of fishing communities and small communities to deliver babies. And um, 
they were generally remote places that didn't have a midwife. And she was really comfortable with the culture of fishing towns and um, had a lot of inns in the Orthodox community. So it's like a Russian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox communities. And one of the big ones was in Kodiak, Alaska. So I went with her for some births um, and we would travel there for births. And so as I was apprentice and she was the preceptor and like one of the first rounds times I went there um, for a birth, we actually had three people do. And one person was in Anchorage, one person was in Kodiak and one person was in Homer. And so we attended the, of course, they stacked up back to back. So one delivered, I got on a plane standby and sweet talked them to get the last sheet on the plane to Kodiak. We, we got there, she was right behind me in the next flight. We, and this is a solid like, you know, hour, it's an hour long flight on those planes that we were flying at the time. It's like an hour and 15 minutes to get there. And then we had a 24 hour, you know, delivery. And then as soon as we were done, we went to the park, took a breath. It was like 5 a.m. or something. Got a cup of coffee. We're looking out at the bay, just congratulating ourselves that oh, we're, work well done. And then we got the call of the person at Homer. So if you look on a map, so Kodiak is this very large island. It's the second largest island in the United States. So it's second only to the big island in Hawaii. And Alaska, if you look, put it on the map for, you know, on top of the lower 48, it takes up about a third of the entire continental U.S. So it's huge. And so these are huge distances that we're, we're traveling. So the um, island of Kodiak is in the Gulf of Alaska and Homer is to the north on the mainland. And so it takes from Anchorage, you go to drive to Anchorage to Homer, it takes about four and a half, five hours driving on a highway. Um, and then so flying from Kodiak was, that's actually a shorter flight. But so we heard, we heard she's in labor. There's no commercial flights till the afternoon. So the father of the second birth baby is a private pilot. And so we asked him if he'd fly us. So we got in a, in a small airplane with the dad who was also super sleep deprived because he'd been up all night and we all chugged coffee, got a Subway sandwich and flew to Homer and then got picked up by that birth dad. And we show up to the house and it turns out it was false labor, but it was an adventure anyway. Um, and I ended up getting a ride. I can't remember how I got back to Anchorage because we didn't have a car. And I remember that there was a motorcycle involved. I think her husband took me on the back of his motorcycle to the next town, which was like, you know, an hour or something away. And then I got a flight back to Anchorage. So that's an example of like transportation. It's a big, challenge just because the land is so massive and so the really what i wanted to share about today was like what it's like living and practicing specifically in a really remote place because people get very pie in the sky idea oh i want to serve underserved populations and i want to go somewhere rural and i want to arrive you know people want to arrive at this town where there is no midwife and then you'll be the midwife and i think there's some sort of a little bit of savior um issue there that i certainly had and also it's very appealing because you don't have to compete and you have to do this big advertising thing and then there's no you know the whole you know it's just all that so, um, and then you also feel like you're doing really good and that clients tend to be extremely, extremely appreciative. And so I, um, when my preceptor, she went to PA school and when she went to PA school, I took over her practice and I took over her Kodiak clients and I instantly was super busy. I was doing, you know, three to four births a month, which there is you know, close to 10% of the births. So over the period of time that I worked there, I, I averaged doing 5% of the births on the island, which is average for Alaska. Alaska 5% out of hospital is pretty standard in Juneau. And there's other places that have a lot higher rates. And then of course, some places don't have midwives, the so really remote places, um, like the Arctic towns and whatnot. But most of the cities that have um, hospitals do have midwives. So 
I went there super excited just because I was ready to get out of the city, ready to not be in my car all day. And just all the drama of, you know, city life. I was spending 40 minutes each way to get my kids to school and um, really enchanted by the idea of being this island midwife. Little did I know what was involved in practicing alone so far from my sister midwives, any support. Um, it's a serious undertaking. And I just wanted to share some, you know, warnings of some of the experience that I had when you, when you go to a land far, far away and decide to set up a practice. So one of the first things is that I, I got there and I just started practicing and then I got um, word from people that the doctors were already mad at me. And I was like, how are they already mad at me? I haven't done anything yet. How dare you? What they said is, how dare you come and start practicing and not come and introduce yourself? And I was used to working in a city. I worked in Anchorage where you show up to do transport. They don't care who you're, what your name is. If you have three eyeballs in the front of your hair, head, they don't care. Just give me the chart. Is she a primate? How long has she been ruptured? What's her GBS status? And so their feelings were hurt that I didn't like go around and introduce myself. So that was like the first thing. It was kind of, it was a total culture shock because I'd never lived in a small town before. Now, I think a lot of this learning curve would be different if somebody was raised in a small town because I broke rules left and right in a small town. It's just this layer of, um, you just can't mess up. There's just no margin for error in a small town. And I'm not talking even clinical things. I'm just talking socially. And then something that my uh, preceptor warned me about, she never joined a church because she's like, well, if I join the, you know, if I join the Pentecostal church or if I join the Catholic, you know, if I go to any of the churches, then people are like, oh, well, she's blah, blah, blah. So she, she found in these small towns, she could never actually be a member at any church because it would just cause issues. The other thing that um, can happen is professionally, um, it's, you're just walking this tightrope. Like when you transport, you only have a finite number of people's transport to, and you really have to be so careful about relationships with these transporting the people you transport to. And I mean, you always on some level have to, but there's no alternative. There's no alternative. You can't just go to a different hospital or you can't, um, they do come and go, at least in, in Kodiak, there, there was some turnover of providers, but there's also these um, older people who've been there for 30 years that everyone just trusts inherently and even if they're a terrible provider because oh well that was who I went to when I first started getting annuals and they built this trust even if it can be a misplaced trust He's, um I mean I had an amazing time I had amazing clientele my favorite were um, the commercial fishery fishing people they were the best birthers they were the best birthers you could imagine. They're like farmers, you know, they're used to working crazy long hours. They're used to being cold, like your typical, if any woman has worked on a commercial fishing boat, I don't even have to worry. She doesn't need a single childbirth class. She can handle this because what they go through, they'll have these things called openers. So they have 24 hours to fish. Nobody sits down. Sometimes they won't even feed their crew if it's more abusive captains. You're freezing, you're covered in fish slime, and people are yelling at you. And you could die at any moment, get pulled overboard, you can get your hand cut off. Like, birth to them is like a spa, you know, like people are massaging you, and it smells nice, and everything's clean and beautiful, and all you have to deal with is some contractions for them. It's really easy. So this amazing um, group, and then also the Orthodox, um, Eastern Orthodox people were amazing to work with. They had, um, you know, just a lot of faith and a lot of respect for midwives. Like midwives are one of their icons, like one of their saints is a midwife. 
um, is it Olga? I think it's St. Olga is a midwife. So they have all the icons up and the pictures of the different saints. And one of them is a midwife. Oh, and she's, no, she's not a saint yet, but she's actually from Alaska and she's in the process of becoming beatified or whatever it means when they become a saint. So they have a, just a really special respect. And in their nativity story, uh, there's midwives. Like our nativity story, it's, a, it's unassisted, but in theirs, they have midwives, which is kind of cool. So it was a it was a very beautiful time working there. There's very there's a lot of beauty. Um, and the, there was a lot of hardship. And and I just want everyone to keep that in mind when they think about setting up shop in, in a remote place. One of the most beautiful things about midwives attending births on the land is that we are in people's lives on their land. We're invited into one of the most sacred experiences of a human's life. Sometimes it looks like a life we know, and sometimes it doesn't. We get a window into people's lifestyles and choices. Um, as Hayes says in this recording, this story coming up, we get to see into their vibe. And not everyone has the same vibe. But what midwives do so well is we meet people where they are and support them to discover the magic in their life, no matter what their life looks like. This story has goats and cats. Let's listen in. Okay, I got a good one that just jumps to my mind. I swear I'm going to write these stories down and publish this book. I hunted birds up in Topanga Canyon. And for people who don't know Topanga Canyon is, it's very, it's like a hilly area of Los Angeles that's right by the ocean. So there's like, it's like a mountainous area. It's cliffs, lots of trees, dirt roads. And, you know, there's one way into Topanga and there's one way out of Topanga. And, um, it was late at night. It must have been around 12.30 in the morning. And it was a very steep hill. And I had not done the home visit. So I was trying to find this place in my little car, driving up literally what seemed like an impossible steep hill. And I was like, I'm not going to make it. My car is going to go backwards. And not, it's, it's, this is it. This is how it's going to end. But I finally made it up. And I get there and we're birthing in a, you know, those old school silver streams, Airstream, Airstream, the yeah. silver ones, right? This one was yeah. about from the 60s, 70s. And it was perched on top of this cliff. And there were goats everywhere and llamas. And they're frolicking all over the place. And I walk into this stream and this Airstream. And first of all, it's the size of a bathroom, right? which, you know, midwives have birth in small places. It's very common. This is the size of the bathroom. And there were like seven cats in this small space and they were all long haired cats. So there's hair everywhere. There's goats hitting, jumping and ramming the silver stream. Mind you, the silver stream is on the edge of a cliff. So I'm like, we're, we're, this is it. We're not gonna make it. This, I can't sit down. I'm not drinking anything from here because literally there was, there, it was the crazy, we literally stood up there and we stood and we didn't drink and we didn't pee. <laughs> <laughs> and we just, we held on whenever those llamas and, and goats started ramming and we're just like, it's okay, we're just, we're like, hurry up and have the baby. Hurry up and have the baby. <laughs> I couldn't oh, believe it. And we're talking a lot of goats. There were like nine goats. And then there were baby ones. And then they would let them come in and they would just dump right there. Oh, big goat poo is not, I, the whole thing was crazy. Now, mind you, we're not touching anything because there's layers and layers of cat hair everywhere. And, you know, that's cool because that's their, that's their vibe and they have the right to birth in their vibe. But she is happy. She is feeling powerful. 
he's so in love. And it was just really amazing. It was beautiful. We just had to wait for her. Like, literally, we're just holding space. We're just like, whenever you're ready, we're ready. We we didn't we didn't really unpack anything because you know we we unpacked things on top of our cases because we couldn't get it out of the sterile field. But you know they were good, and that's what home birth is. That's it's the powerful aspect of it that they felt great about everything that was happening. So while I'm waiting to fall off the cliff waiting for her to start pushing we're just kind of saying okay if something goes down where are we going to put her where are we going to put the baby so you know we're planning strategically and um, then she just decides that she's going to do this standing up she says it's time she starts pushing she's kind of squatting but she's holding on to like where there's where the sink is she's holding on to that so she can see all the goats as they're frolicking past the window. <laughs> you know, every now and then there's one peeking his head inside. And, you know, I just, I I had to block the door because I was like, because goat poop, it's just, it's pellets. Like lots of pellets that fall out and roll. And I was like, I can't. I just, I can't. <laughs> so, um, so I blocked the door. And then we just start squatting down with her to do this and she did not push for a long time she was so happy she was just like my baby's coming my baby's coming and we're like your baby is definitely coming you are doing a great job mama and he's like you're amazing you're amazing this is amazing so, so maybe she pushed for 40 minutes maybe and um she caught her baby we were just there to assist baby was absolutely perfection color was great cry was good tone was amazing you know just like it was just, it was perfection we couldn't have asked for anything better except not to go down that steep hill right oh, oh we God. still had to get yeah so we were there longer you know because we had to make sure everybody's good baby's good we put them into their little cozy area afterwards and um, she didn't need suturing. She needed nothing. It was just perfection. And we went over postpartum instructions and planned for when, you know, one of us was coming back 24 hours later and um, mm-hmm. left them happy as pigs in slop. Leaving them happy as pigs in slop. Well, that's a colorful reference for how we do, in fact, leave our families cozy tucked in bed enjoying their new babe hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll join us next week for the next and final episode in the midwives and the elements mini series